Now these uh, Sunday mornings we are looking at the great event of the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 as Luke has recorded it and we're looking at uh, the present time at the sermon that uh, Peter preached and I want to draw your attention to verses 33 to 36 of Acts 2. Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this is the third text that Peter has in this remarkable sermon. He's speaking to thousands of Jews that have come, not just from Galilee and all Judea, but have traveled from all over the Mediterranean basin. They are there, they are devout, and so they try to come as often as they can to the great feast days that took place three times a year in Jerusalem. The theme of the first text that Peter preached to them, was that, well, this event was prophesied by God. Don't you know your Bibles? Don't you know Joel chapter 2? That which was spoken by the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what has happened. That's why these strange phenomena are occurring. And then the second text he preached was from Psalm 16 that declared that uh, God raised Jesus from the dead. He couldn't leave his Holy One, see corruption, rot and decay in the grave. And the third text that Peter preaches from is Psalm 110, David's Psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So, Peter's sermon had three texts. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, prophesied by God. And then the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then the exaltation and enthronement with might and power at God's right hand. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached many, many sermons with two texts. He preached... I could count eight sermons with three texts. One of the most famous sermons that had three texts was preached by the great giant of a theologian, Hugh Martin, in Scotland. It's still known, it's still referred to and quoted in the Highlands today. The first text was a divine precept. Make you a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 18. The second text was the divine promise. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And his third text then was the sinner's prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. The precept, followed by the promise, followed by the prayer. And that kind of structure can be found right through the Bible. The first is an utterance from the great white throne of judgment. The second is an utterance from the throne of grace. 
And the third is an utterance from the footstool that is there where sinners kneel before the throne of grace. In this sermon, Peter tells them that the miraculous signs, the languages that they can understand, the rushing mighty wind, the flames of fire on them, was the fulfillment of prophecy. It was the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. This Jesus whom they'd crucified, God has exalted and raised from the dead and given a name above every name. But that's not the end. He wants to speak now about what Jesus does with the power that he has received from God. And so our text says that exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out this. You are seeing it. You are hearing it. David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, what are we told about Jesus from this part of Peter's sermon? The great climax of his sermon. Well, firstly, we are told this. We know now where Jesus is. John was given a vision of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, and we are told that he saw him standing in the center of the throne. And Peter tells us here, he's exalted to the right hand of God. In other words, uh, this Jesus whom they crucified was more than a human being. We know that the saints will be seated with Christ, and they will judge men and angels with Christ, but the saints are never described as exalted to the right hand of God. To which of the angels did God say at any time, Sit thou at my right hand? Aren't they all subject to God? Under God, not co-equals, not shoulder to shoulder with God. They are the servants of God. Michael the archangel and Gabriel the archangel. It's to the Messiah alone that God said these great words. Sit at my right hand the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The place where the omnipresent God is most powerfully known. There he is, the friend of sinners, the mediator with God. Where is Jesus today? He's whispering our names into the ears of his heavenly Father. He's not usurped that place. God has given it to him. God has in effect said to him, I'm so delighted with all that you are and all you've done that you humbled yourself even to the death of the cross. So I'm exalting you and I'm giving you a name that is above every name. I want you to finish the work that you began. So come and sit here and tell me what you want. Ask of me, I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the world to be thy possession. You can just ask, and I'll give it to you. We're told that his posture now is this. He is sitting, sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, he's completed the work of atonement. In the world, there was the tabernacle, and then that was followed by the temple. 
And in that tabernacle and in that temple, there were lamps and there were tables and there were altars, but there were no chairs because the priests had no time to sit down. There was a queue of people coming with their lambs and their goats and their pigeons and their doves to be sacrificed and offered to God. And they didn't have time for a moment to sit back and, and relax. They were busy. There were no chairs there for them whatsoever. But Jesus, the new high priest, has finished the work of sacrifice and atonement. Sit at my right hand, God says to him. Have we all come to appreciate this? That the great work of redemption by Jesus Christ is all over. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. That God has accepted everything that Jesus Christ has done. And so he exalts him. Sit at my right hand. Sit. It's all over. All your suffering, all your all the price of redemption has been paid. Sit at my right hand. God has accepted all the work of Christ. Are any of you thinking, well, yes, that work that work would be perfect if I could just add a little bit of my suffering and and, and my good works and my courage in, in witnessing and the things that I have done. Uh, then when I've made my contribution, then it would be perfect. Are you thinking? Dare you think like that? You haven't learned to look to Jesus Christ? To put your confidence in him alone? To plead his name only? When the serpents bit the children of Israel in the wilderness, when they were going through one of their outbursts of rebellion and contempt for God, and they were dying and crying for mercy, God said to Moses, put a great brazen serpent up on a pole. And they weren't to bow down and worship it, or crawl on their knees towards it, or lick the dust at its feet. They were simply to look to that brazen serpent. They were to put their trust in what God would do in mercy to those who obeyed him. And those who looked, lived. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so has the Son of Man been lifted up, that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm saying that God is satisfied with what Jesus has done and the Spirit is satisfied with what Jesus has done and the angels in heaven and the general assembly and church of the firstborn which is written in heaven, they're all satisfied with what the Lord Jesus has done and Jesus is seated. And the sad thing is that some of you are not satisfied with what Jesus alone is doing and you're adding to the work of Christ. Then, Well, you go to church on Sundays and... Uh, you try to live a good life and you don't swear and you don't drink. My friends, it's not enough. You've got to turn from those things. You've got to make a bundle of all the good works you've done. and Just destroy them. Look to the seated one at God's right hand. 
So we know where he is. And we know how long he will be there. Um, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there he is, untouched now by his enemies, the untouchable one. After toil comes rest, after victory comes peace. It's the end of strife. For him, Jerusalem sinners were filled with malice, bribery, corruption, brutality. They whipped him. They nailed him to a cross. They thrust a spear into his side. They mocked him as he writhed there. They can't touch him now. He's out of reach. They're kicking against the goads when they do unspeakable things to his servants. This week, when they behead men and women, when they throw them into jail, when they stone them to death because they confess the name of Jesus Christ, when they kidnap 300 teenage girls and take them away. What malice, what hatred they have. They can't touch him. They would if there was a rocket that they could launch that would dislodge him from the throne of heaven. They would light the fuse and set it off, but they can't touch him. That he is delivered from all of that. He is sitting until his, all his enemies are made his footstool. He is as high as your imagination allows you to put him. And then he is a million times higher than that. Men trampled on his name and they spat upon him. But now he's in the dust and they live. They're in the dust and he lives there, exalted to God's right hand. His throne is forever and ever. You cannot slip a piece of Indian paper between the father and the son. I and my father are one. They're one in their providential care and love over us. They're one in their determination to do us good. They're one in their longing that all of us limping, staggering Christian men and women should one day be in glory, that we should be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our Lord Jesus, he is there. He's in control. Father's put all things in his power, all things in heaven, in earth, under the earth, the distant nebulae, the buzz of the atom. Not one rogue molecule, I always tell you, is outside the control of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the actions and decisions of good men and bad men, his people and devils, they're all under him. Their decision to crucify his son, he took it up. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, and so he took up that decision, and he used it to save us from our sin. Jesus Christ, head over all things to the church. Head of everything. It's the most comforting reality I can remind you of. He's in control of your life. This morning I had a letter this week from my dear friend Ian Hamilton, the uh, pastor in, in Cambridge. And he told me that the week before Christmas he answered the phone and it was the police on the phone and the fire services to tell him that they had had to break 
down the door into his uh, apartment in Glasgow where one of his children, she's a student there and she lives with a couple of her friends in the house that they maintained there, the flat that they maintained in Scotland. And she'd not misbehaved if there'd been a deluge of water. A pipe had burst in cold weather and it had flooded their flat and it had taken the ceilings down in a number of rooms and it had dripped down to the flat below and the flat below that. No one was at home and the emergency services then had answered and they'd broken down the door and got in and switched off the the water. So he flew up from Stansted to Cambridge and uh, there was a derelict lounge Ruined furniture, tarpaulins everywhere, sizable holes in the ceilings. And he wrote and said, perhaps you're thinking, poor Ian and Joan. Well, yes, we were somewhat deflated. The mess, the thought of arranging affairs before Christmas. Our daughter and her flatmates inconvenienced. On top of it all, our insurers told us that I was not covered for that kind of of deluge. Wrong kind of leaves. Wrong kind of rain. To be honest, my first thought was, I could do without this, especially at this time of the year. My second thought, however, and I wish it had been my first, was, but in my Lord's wise and always gracious purposes, he decreed, I couldn't do without this. He does All things well. Every detail in our lives is within his sovereign overruling care and purpose. He ordains all that comes to pass according to his own will. And he does so not only for his own glory, but for the good of his children. Sometimes, Ian writes, it takes the smallest of cross providences to knock us off balance. Sometimes it takes the smallest of unforeseen happenings to expose how unspiritual the default of our Christian lives really is. As Christians, we rejoiced in the verse that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Like all Christian ministers, I love to preach on God's wise and gracious sovereignty. But the Lord knows we need to be reminded constantly of this truth in the daily routines of life. Not least when those routines are rudely interrupted by collapsing ceilings and the like. The Lord's sovereignty at the right hand of God is not first a theological cudgel. It is not a theological machete. It is a pastoral comfort. The God whose sovereignty is unabridged is our gracious Savior. His care of his own is perfect. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He upholds and shapes and directs the cosmos to secure the everlasting good of his children. And that includes collapse ceilings. Growth in grace, which is what sanctification is, is all about trusting and rejoicing in the little things that daily touch our lives. My initial reaction to the news of our water-damaged apartment did me little credit. I think Paul had people like me in mind when he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. What is your first reaction to collapse ceilings 
or their equivalent. Our Lord has been exalted to the right hand of God. His reign is perfect. He can be trusted to bring everything into your life that is for your good and your growth in grace. Everything under the sovereignty of Jesus. A burst pipe, a collapsed ceiling, theft of our tools, a road accident, damage done to a neighbor's property by our carelessness, a delay in the time of an operation, the birth of a less than perfect baby. Every such thing is permitted by Christ. Even those things that muggers and thieves and liars do for us and in us. So that's the first thing that uh, Peter says here. We know where Jesus is, that he is in, he's the supremo of creation. He's in control of everything in our lives, everything in the universe. And secondly, we know what Jesus does with his powers. We know what the prodigal son had when he returned back from the father, back from the distant country to the father. We know, don't we, what he had? He had a a warm embrace. He had a hug. He had a, a new robe. He had new sandals. He had a fatted calf. He had music. He had feasting. He had acceptance again. As his father's son. We know that. What did the son of God receive from the father? Well, we are told here in verse 33. He has received from the father the promised Holy Spirit. He is the first fruits of the reign of Christ. The reign that's gone on for 2,000 years. He's pouring forth the Holy Spirit on the 120. Filling them, each one, without exception. And they speak in these unknown languages and they have the, the flame of fire on their heads and the wind is blowing around them mightily. He has poured out this that you see and hear, he says to them. So it wasn't the drink that was making them speech in, speak in Greek and Latin and Aramaic and the languages of Libya. It was the Holy Spirit. He was doing it. Lord Jesus that day said, right, ten days now has passed since I was exalted. Holy Spirit, pour out your self and your power and your presence on the people of God meeting in Jerusalem. And he does that ever since. And today, all over the world, there are millions of congregations of God's people. And the Lord Jesus is giving the command to the Holy Spirit to come visit this church in Abaraswith, he says, to sanctify and enlighten and comfort and strengthen and keep every one of them. His uh, enemies thought then that uh, he, he had, they'd finished with him, that he wouldn't trouble them ever again. But the absence of his bodily presence from the temple in Jerusalem was not, uh, not some lesser activity. But he had never preached to 3,000 men so that they were all converted. He had never gone to Samaria to preach and the whole city of Samaria was transformed. He would never gone to uh, North Africa, to Ethiopia, 
He'd never gone to Greece and Rome, and, but his people, they were going through all the world. Jesus was limited. There was one synagogue on a Sunday morning where he could go and where he could speak to the congregation. There was one house where he could sit with a family and talk to them over the meal. There was one village where he could preach to the people, only one at a time. Now, he says, greater things than I've done, you will do. You will go into all the world, thousands of you, and the Holy Spirit will be with you, and the gospel will spread like wildfire around the world. That's what Jesus is doing now, shedding his spirit abundantly. His bountiful care. What tongue can recite? Breathes in the air. It shines in the night. It streams from the hills. It descends to the plains and sweetly distills in the moon, in the wind and the rains. It's there. It's there. It spreads right through the world today. The Holy Spirit is at work. He's coming. He's blessing. He's blessing us. But he's blessing those in Australia at the same time and in the Eastern Hemisphere and the Western Hemisphere. He's sent by the Lord Jesus. That's what he does. The Lord Jesus says to him, go now and visit that congregation. He comes immediately. He delights to glorify the one he loves with all his being. And he comes and he makes Jesus more beautiful and wonderful to us all. He won't leave us orphans. He's carrying on this work. And so he's there with Peter. That's the reason why a young fisherman, the age of you students, gets up and stands on a stone and faces thousands and thousands of people. And he starts to preach. And there's an extraordinary impact on his words. You know, uh, it was uh, 200 years ago that uh, Francis Beaufort invented the wind force scale. It's still used today. And the scale talks of light breezes, strong winds, high winds, gale force winds, hurricane force winds. And so the winds from heaven come. They come to us gently. Oh, we wish they were more powerful. They come in other places in the world today. They are powerfully at work. And everywhere... Different forces of the wind of heaven is at work and it's refreshing and reviving and strengthening the work of the gospel. I had a friend, uh, Peter Holland's brother in Stanton Lees, in, and when he was a young man, he wondered what to do with his life. And he, he loved the Queen. And he wrote a letter to Buckingham Palace and he said, Do you need anyone to work for you? I'd love to work for you. He had an interview. And so he spent his life there in, in Buckingham Palace. And uh, he showed me the pieces of china. The Queen um, had pieces of Dalton or Wedgwood china, little pieces specially made for her. And she personally gave them then to her staff. He went with her around the world. And um, he showed me these lovely pieces of china that she had given him. We look around and we see the wonderful works of grace in the lives of people in this congregation that we know. Some of them are young and oh, they are so mature in spiritual things. Some of them are our own family and 
We look in awe at our wives or our husbands or our children. We think what mature and holy and patient and loving and kind people they are. And it's not because our influence has rubbed off on them. It's not that our children genetically have received these spiritual graces from us. It's him, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has had pity on us. And he sent the Holy Spirit into our lives. And he's made us the kind and loving and wise and sensible people. We'd never be like this, except that Jesus sent the Spirit. And the Spirit came into our lives. Without the Holy Spirit. Do you realize what it would be without the Holy Spirit? There would be no New Testament. There would be no pastors and teachers. There would be no preparing God's people for the work of service. There would be no progress in grace and in maturity and in patience under affliction. We'd be little kids We'd be peevish and quarrelsome and smack and pull the hair of our sisters. We'd be blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. We'd be excited about music and excited about drums and candles and humor and stories and trendy eloquence. That's what would be exciting us. We would be even more superficial. God has looked on us and doesn't want us to be like that. Wants us to be the children of God in the likeness of Christ. Our bodies presented as a living sacrifice filled with the Holy Spirit. And God has given that spirit to Jesus to say, go, go to that teenager, go to that woman, go to that child, go to that man. And the third thing then, and the last thing that we see here in uh, this uh, section of Peter's sermon is we know that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. That's what he says. That's the great conclusion to his sermon. In other words, there's nothing we can do. Nothing we can possibly do to make this Jesus Lord and anointed one anything more than what God has done to exalt him. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, verse 36. God has done it. God has highly exalted him. God has given him all authority in heaven and earth. God has seated him at his right hand. God is the only one who could make him Jehovah Jesus. God's anointed prophet and priest and king. No action of yours could have made Jesus Christ the Lord. Peter is facing these thousands of troubled, increasingly concerned Jews who had hated Jesus and considered him a heretic and a blasphemer. He didn't say to them, Well, trust in Jesus as your personal saviour. He didn't want them to raise their hands. He didn't want them to repeat a little prayer after him. While thinking they'd take out life insurance against going to hell by uh, trusting in him. No way! The only saviour there is, the only saviour in the whole world today that every church should know is one 
that's mighty and exalted. God has made him Jehovah. God has made him the Lord. Certainly the gospel is a gospel that urges us to trust, entrust ourselves, give ourselves to Jesus Christ. But it is also a gospel of obedience to the Lord Jesus. In no other way you you can be assured of having eternal life. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, he once wrote this. We know we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. That's how we know we know him. If you have him, if you have Jesus Christ in your life as God and Lord, it will show itself in a great Christian difference in your speech, in your attitude to mum and dad, in your testimony, in your life, by your words, by your life. There are people who can name the time and the day when they accepted Christ as their personal Savior. How are they living? Are they living like the devil? Are they talking the talk but not walking the walk? Many Christians think it's possible to accept Jesus Christ as Savior while they reject him as their Lord. And there are courses that teach this. It's a whole new two-phase salvation concept which allows people to be rescued from hell by trusting in Jesus but living like the devil in this world. Safe! Because they've said a prayer. Where in the whole New Testament can a doctrine like that be found? Did the Lord Jesus ever assure people he would deliver them from hell while they were still in charge of the lifestyle and the options that they were taking? His words thunder against that. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, no one can serve two masters, for either he will serve the one and hate the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We come to the end of ourselves of trying to ride these two horses at the same time, the Lord Jesus and something else. We, 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 we've come, we come to realize it can't be done. Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. The true Christian has the life of God in him. It is manifest. It is evident. It's not just word service. But it is a life of service to God. We come to the end of ourselves and we we lay aside all the trinkets and baubles of this world. Every idol, whatever that idol be, we destroy it. We get out a great crowbar and we 
work away so that that idol topples. And we get a sledgehammer out and we smash the foundation to pieces and we serve only him. That's what a Christian is. He's someone who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord. is the Lord of his life. God has made him Lord and so the only Lord we know is him. Men and women are not Christians today because um, they, they haven't got enough evidence. There's not enough um, stuff for them to believe uh, that uh, the preacher isn't eloquent enough or they don't have extraordinary feelings running up and down their spine. If only they had all those things, then they'd be a Christian. It's not the reason you're not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. It's because you love your sin too much. And you don't want to change. And you don't want to turn from it and and, and look to Him and put your trust in Him. That's the dilemma you're facing. You cannot serve two masters. God has made Him Lord and Christ. See it. That's who He is. Are you serving this Lord? Why not? Why not? What troubles you've brought into your life because you served self. You served your feelings. Look at the mess that came from that in your life. You're still living in the repercussions of serving self. Here's this Lord and he's willing to take you back. He took back the prodigal son. He'll take you back. Or he'll pardon you and forgive you. You can live with your father in his house forevermore. And know his blessings. You can know that. You can know it. Don't despair. Don't think you've gone too far. You've done too much. There's no hope for you. Yes. In, In this Savior. This wonderful Savior. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now. Thank you for an exalted Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has been given a name so high and so great and glorious. Oh, we're so glad of that. Thank you for honoring us with your presence. Thank you for coming from heaven now, Holy Spirit, and enlightening our minds and convicting us of our sins. And oh, regeneration. Oh, blessed new birth. Oh, grant that birth from heaven shall come upon those that know thee not. Oh, Savior, we have nothing to plead but our great need and your great mercy. Oh, display it this morning, we pray. To us all here, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.